It's Saga 50 Thursday on So Organised Style Podcast. I'm Maria Theoharis or Velosos, and it's great to be back in your sewing room once again. So Organised Style Podcast acknowledges traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging. A big sponsor shout out goes to our two podcast friends and sponsors, the Australian Sewing Guild who has been our Monday Daily Series regular is now a sponsor of Sew Organised Style Podcast. Go to ozsew.org to check out the online workshops, sew-alongs, skills library and more. Our second sponsor is Tatiana's School of Couture as she launches it online. Go to her website to see her new online sewing classes and patterns. Hi everyone, welcome back to Sober 50 Thursday on Sew Organised Style Podcast. Today our special guest is Di Kendall and her handle is Sew It With Di. So let's give a warm welcome to Di. How are you, Di? I'm fine, thank you. And it's so lovely to hear from you and for you to ask me to do this. I'm really pleased that you put your hand up to be on this podcast for Sober 50. It's quite an honour because from what you've already told me, this is not your first recording, is it? Um, No, I am used to speaking to people through my job. I was a teacher for 38 years. So talking to not just to young people, but to the adults that I work with was was normal for me. However, during lockdown, one or two things I've been doing has meant that I did a live radio recording. And then I was asked if I would do a pre-record for our local news, which is a BBC East Midlands news, where I was actually filmed sewing and making my mask so and then then a brief interview so no it's not quite my first recording but it is my first podcast what you've already done so far is really good for the community and i'm really pleased that you've agreed to come on to so over 50s podcast to give the sewing community an idea of all the work that you've done for the community so how about we get started okay i'll tell you a little bit perhaps about where i live in the uk oh yes please that, that useful? I live in a village called Heed, it's a large village in an old property, it's about 200 years old and I would call it semi-rural. The village has about 5,000 people but I live about 200 metres out of the village down a road that are only four houses in the little community that I actually live in on the edge of the countryside but within about 15 miles of two large cities right in the centre of the UK so in the east of the Midlands. So I'm not far from Derby, which is an engineering town. Its background is in engineering. We have Rolls-Royce, which I think you will know about. Yes. They make aero engines for large aeroplanes and and other things as well. And then in the other direction is Nottingham. And that was a lace-making centre. Unfortunately, no longer. But it's very much, the East Midlands has a history in garment making. So I suppose traditionally the men worked in engineering the women worked in garment making. Unfortunately, the, you know, the demise of the, of the garment industry means that has shrunk considerably, but we do still have garment making, those sort of small enterprises, and quite, you know, one particularly large one not too far away, which I really enjoy going and having a look round as well. So, yeah, that's a little bit about where I am and the background to where I am. 
Thank you for letting us know. I mean, Nottingham, Sheriff of Nottingham is... That's right. Yep. Yes. What I would yep. recognise. Yep. And the Midlands area, any part of the UK, has got lots of history when it comes to mills and textiles. Very much so, yeah. yeah. I mean, my local town is in a, in a heritage site. It might be a world heritage site because okay. we actually are in the Derwent Valley where there were the development of mills that will be known all the way around the world, to be honest. Hmm. Okay. My question to you is, what role has sewing played a part in your life? <laughs> Rather a large one. <laughs> in fact, I think it's kept me going in many ways for lots of different reasons. I was born in the 50s. I grew up in the 60s. Okay. Went to secondary school in 1966. And that was where I first really started to learn to sew. But till then, my mum, very typical of women of that era, made our clothes. It was after the war, almost out of necessity, people were making clothes. It was a normal thing to do. My mother was a fiercely independent woman and encouraged me to not necessarily conform to the norms. I had to follow the rules. Yes. But when it comes to what I do, what I wear, then I was encouraged to do what I wanted to do. So I was very much into sport. And it was when I went to secondary school that I first started to learn to sew. And when I look back, I went at 11, left at 18. And I would think every week of my education, I had a lesson to do with dressmaking. So I had an incredible foundation in garment making. And I didn't just enjoy it. I think I enjoyed it and I was successful at it. Yes. I look back and realise actually it was one of the things in life that I actually found quite easy. But that doesn't mean to say I don't have an empathy now for people who find it harder. So it was always there. I was very into sport and my sewing sort of was what I did in my spare time around training for swimming and things like that. So it was always there right through school. By the time I left school, I'd got really good foundation in techniques, in fibres and fabrics. I'm still quite passionate about understanding fibres and fabrics trying to pass that knowledge on to people, which I think is where I get a lot of strength from trying to pass on things that I know in a way people can understand in the present day. Mm. But I'd also, by the time I left school, I'd also learnt pattern cutting. And I won't say I'm an experienced pattern cutter, but I've got that basic knowledge and having used lots of commercial patterns since, you know, I feel quite able now to use that as a skill. Then I went on to train to teach and I trained to teach physical education because of my sport. I was always going to be a PE teacher. But my second subject, I couldn't do textiles or, or dressmaking, but I could do art and craft. So I took art and craft, but I was able to specialise in textile techniques, if you like. So surface decoration, embroidery, but embroidery in a creative way and also printing fabric, colouring fabric. So I'd still got that going along as a backup subject. And then when I got into teaching, I was teaching physical education, but the first opportunity I got to get involved with what was still needlework and dressmaking in the late 1970s, mm -hmm. I jumped at the opportunity and discovered another couple of teachers who are a little bit older than me, who were also passionate dressmakers, and they introduced me to Vogue patterns. And that was one of those things that I always thought was perhaps more sophisticated than me, perhaps a bit too difficult. And actually, I discovered a whole new world of 
clothing and techniques. I learned so much that was different to how I'd learned at school. So much from things like Vogue designer patterns because their instructions were really clear. So that's always been there for me. And then I continued teaching textiles and the subject changed because it became under threat in the UK mm. as a subject in schools and has almost disappeared now. But it meant to keep the subject alive, I had to discover things like how textiles and art came together. So did a lot more on the creative use of textiles and also almost the opposite, how textiles and technology come together. So I had to find out about how textiles are used in industry, in construction, in medicine. So I've had this very, very wide, eclectic mm. experience of textiles you say, in its widest sense. But dressmaking has always been my passion. It would be dressmaking that I go back to at home. Can I ask a question? When you've mm. gone from being passionate about doing dressmaking all your life and then getting the opportunity to teach textiles and then being pulled away from it because the curriculum changed, when you were trying to bring textiles into the curriculum. So I'm really curious to see how you were able to bring your passion back, even though the curriculum was changing. Working with the young people using print, we did a lot of batik, screen printing, and then adding extra sort of surface decoration to that. Yeah. So what I tried to keep going was teaching young people to use a sewing machine. Yeah. So I was always trying to find ways of making sure that by the time they left school, at least they weren't nervous of a sewing machine. Mm. Less and less people were sewing at home. So I had this theory that if young people didn't use, get, you know, get to, to sort of feel safe with a sewing machine at school, chances were they would never use one. So even if it was years down the line mm. and they suddenly thought, oh, yeah, well, I have done that before. Yeah. Perhaps I can do it. So I always got that sewing machine in there somewhere. And we do all sorts of projects. We used to have to look at design in product design. Yeah. And I do projects like looking at promotional items. A lot of it around these days where any business produces products that promote their business. So we used to look at things like chocolate bars, which would be frowned on these days with healthy living. Yeah. But we look, at, we, we look at the design of chocolate bars and how they use colour, how they use the fonts, okay. the size of lettering and things like that. And then the children would design their own, screen print it on, onto a square of calico. And then we'd make something like, you could use it as a mobile phone case these days, but mm. it, it was the idea was you could put your glasses in it or your sunglasses in it. So we were producing a product that was like an advertising piece, yeah. but using textiles and print skills and the sewing machine to produce it. Can I go back to the other point that you were talking about? Was it textiles in medicine? I think, I mean, it's a long time ago now and things yeah. have moved on, but obviously simple things like surgical dressings, looking at the properties required for things like that. But things like, I think it's heart, heart bypass operations. So yeah. not when you have a stent put in, but when you have a bypass. The actual tubing that certainly was used a few, you know, a few years ago is actually a textile. It's actually a knitted piece mm -hmm. that allows the, the blood to flow through, but it also clots into, into the mesh of the knitting to create a barrier. So the 
there are unusual uses of textiles and also at the time I was doing that they were just beginning to impregnate the fabric mm. with things so but it sort of capsulated things like moisturizers so th there were starting to be uses for people with injuries of having certain textiles that would actually enhance their treatment or create meshes for parts of bodies that needed to be repaired that's, yes yeah the hernia mesh yes which i'm not sure what that's made from now because i don't know about for you guys that's a big issue over here at the moment yeah it was quite amazing the fact that you'd gone to such an extent to at least bring textile technology and applying textiles to the class curriculum when it was trying to be driven out at the time yes i would say now that sort of thing has probably moved into science mm. so i think there is a greater awareness in the science curriculum of the role of textiles in our lives and, and it's massive you know I, I actually used to do an activity to make young people try to almost list it was a homework to list as many things as they could in their homes mm. made from textiles just to, to make them realize how essential it is to our existence so not just clothing but the whole sort of household you know what would life be like if we didn't have it mm. you're opening up their eyes to what's around them yes how long did you teach for in total for 38 years although textiles was my main subject for a long time i taught lots of other things as well i was one of those people that was called on to do a variety of things when nobody else wanted to do it <laughs> uh, but, but in my latter years i was responsible for yeah. young people with special educational needs so it took a complete change of role but that's you know gave me a, a great empathy for anyone really who who struggles emotionally physically academically so that, that that was an interesting change so it's now six years since i finished teaching mm -hmm. and that was quite a shock <laughs> quite a shock to the system so my question now is do you still sew uh possibly obsessively <laughs> It happens, doesn't it? Yeah, but it happened when I, when I finished work. Yeah. I realised that a I needed something to do. But if I sewed at the rate I could sew, I would need an extension to the house for all the things I'd sew, mm -hmm. and most of them would never get warm. Yes. So I had to be quite rational, you know, and think think seriously about how could I spend my time making myself have some sense of worth. Yeah. And not overmake. And I'd already got plenty of work clothes. Your wardrobe needs change when you, or certainly did for me when I finished work, mm. because work gave me a chance to wear more formal clothes. And at home, I need casual clothes. Yep. I tend to wear separates. If I wear a dress, I feel like I'm dressed up. And that's for going out formal things. So I'm, I don't wear dresses very much. Yep. What I realised was that I had skills to pass on. So one of the first things I did was set up a website but I didn't know who was going to look at this website. Okay. You know, I've got reasonably good technical skills, but I wasn't convinced that you could build a website and then that other people would actually use it. I began to wonder if I was doing it for me as a way of putting my thoughts and knowledge onto, literally onto paper, but getting it down somewhere. Mm -hmm. Because that was the first thing I did. And then I got involved with social media. Up, up until then, I'd only had sort of a Facebook page with family, yeah. close friends. But social media opened up this whole world of other people out there who shared my passion. So sort of writing and, and writing, I 
then started writing tutorials, posting them on my blog, then realised that they were getting lost down as the blog progressed yes. in the way it particularly worked. There wasn't a way of putting um, an index into the system that I used. So just recently, part of what I've done during lockdown is find all those posts that I had previously and organise them onto a page now on the website, which is a tutorials page. So, and put them into categories. Yeah, that's still a working progress, but I was quite surprised just how much there was as, as, as I wor worked through it and how much I was missing, you know, I won't say missing, but things I would like to do that I haven't done. So there's some big gaps, but uh, trying to pass on and, and share knowledge that I have, because one of the things I have done over the years is continue to learn. You know, it's not a case that I learned and taught this for so long. I still continue to learn. I, I love to investigate new ways of doing things. And I've realised that there's not just one method of, for example, doing a welt pocket. Mm -hmm. There are quite a few methods and they work on different fabrics. And I really like to encourage people to do, to do what works for them. If they find something that works, that's fine. But be open-minded. I suppose going back a bit, after about six months of finishing work, I discovered a course, an online course called the Savile Row Coat. Oh, you were telling me about this. Yes, I mustn't, I'm going to say, I mustn't forget to tell you about it. Yeah. It was after Christmas, the first year I was, uh, had finished work. And it was winter here in the UK and I really wasn't sure what to do with my time. And I came across, I've no idea how, but I came across this course called the Savile Row Coat. And it was an online course, all pre-recorded. It wasn't a face-to-face -face thing, but it was taught by a master tailor, Andrew Ramroop. And he is the owner of Maurice Sedwell on Savile Row. And he's one of the few tailors who's actually keen to pass the skills on. Tailoring, I think, can be quite a closed community. But he, he set up Savile Row Academy, which is extremely expensive to go to and very limited number of places each year. Mm. He turned out to be the most incredibly good teacher. So I enrolled on the course, invested some of my pension, <laughs> <laughs> and probably one of the best investments I've ever made, to be honest, because I decided that I would take the option of having lifelong access to the resources. Yeah. And I'm so glad I did, because real hand tailoring is like another world to dressmaking. And I could have had the, the course for, say, three months, made the jacket, mm. and then that would have been it. But because I don't tailor frequently, Whenever I do something, I do go back to the resources. Yeah. And I'm not a big watcher of videos. I don't really watch YouTube for sewing tutorials. But I find watching the tutorials absolutely inspiring. One thing that I do watch. And just watching this man being able to manipulate fabric. I've discovered it's like having a second hobby. So I can do dressmaking. Mm -hmm. But tailoring takes, particularly the hand sewing skills that I already had, because I had to learn that at school. And the knowledge I already have of how fabric work, properties of fabric, the characteristics of fabric, how you can ease fabric, shrink fabric, mm -hmm. stretch fabric. It built on all of, all of those things. It's really slow sewing. It is slow sewing. It is very much. And uh, it's also something you can do in the company of other people. So whereas my traditional dressmaking, 
I go off and put myself in a room upstairs, the tailoring, some of it needs that space. Yes. But it's also something you can sit, you can do outside. You can sit, I can sit with my husband while he's watching TV in the evening and be quite happily hand-stitching things that for years I would have done on a sewing machine. That could be the buttonholes, it could be the pad stitching, any of that sort of thing. Yes, and the actual techniques that Andrew Ramrook uses, he would say that I think it's 95% of the jacket is hand-stitched. Yeah. Whereas a lot of tailors, even on Savile Row, are for speed are doing more and more machining. Mm -hmm. But he's very determined to try to keep the very traditional skills alive. So now I do a bit of mix and match. It depends on, on what I'm doing. Yeah. I made my son the jacket for a suit. You know, more of it was machined than perhaps on a previous project, but it, it's still things like all the edges are hand-stitched. So all the way around the front facings and things, yeah. that's all hand-stitched to get really, really flat edges so that the seam allowances, when you rub your fingers down the edge of the facing, yeah. you can't feel the seam allowances and things like that. So I think they're real labours of love, I have to say. They are. <laughs> because of COVID, You've done some really special work recently. Yes, back in March, yes. it really took the wind out of my sails. Mm. I didn't know what to do. You know, I'm used to being home a lot. Not being able to go out impacted because I do a lot of physical activity. I do Zumba and Pilates and things like that. So all of that came to an end. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have all this time. What can I do? And I'd really like to do something constructive to do with, with sewing. But I couldn't get my brain to organise it. I couldn't, couldn't organise my thoughts, do some of the, the things that I thought I might do to do with tutorials and all sorts of things. Yeah. So then we got the situation in the UK where we had a significant shortage of PPE and people started making scrubs. I was a little reluctant to begin with to do that because I felt we had still had a big enough garment making industry mm. that that was something that, that should be you know, being done by them. But it became obvious that there was a need. And initially I got involved in a, a local it was a Facebook group. They were making scrubs for our local hospital, the big, big hospital in Derby. And we soon began to realise that it was going to be very expensive. Um, so rather than trying to source fabric ourselves, you know, sort of individually, we pulled our money. Uh, they set up a crowdfunding sort of page somewhere. Yeah. And we pulled our money. Local industry in our small town got involved in donating money as well. And they managed to buy enough fabric and high quality paramedic grade fabric to make nearly 500 sets of scrubs for our local hospital and doctor surgeries. And I actually made 40 sets of scrubs and they would arrive at my door pre-cut, pre-marked, wow. with embroidered pockets, everything I needed to make. It was like a real cottage industry and they'd arrive. Literally, I didn't have to be in contact with anybody. Obviously, at that time, we had a lot of social distancing. Yeah. Um, I would make them, put them out at the door for somebody to collect. And it was very satisfying. It gave me a sense that I was contributing. And then the whole system in the UK sort of started to kick in and they weren't needed any longer. And I think we felt we'd done our part. You did. Yeah. <laughs> and it kept me busy. It kept me occupied. And then in discussion with my brother-in-law, whose wife is profoundly deaf, he alerted me to the fact that 
the deaf community were going to need mass, mm. the families around the deaf community were going to need mass that allowed their partners, children to lip read. And he asked me if there was something I could do. So I'd already made a few masks just for us as a family, my son who lives in London. So I took the pattern that I developed mm -hmm. and started to investigate how could I put a PVC window into the mask. I had no idea where to find the PVC that was actually sewable. Yeah. That was easier than I expected and turned out to be very similar. I know I think is the same as the PVC used for cosmetic bags, see-through cosmetic bags that people take on, on aircraft. So I sourced that and went about say refining the idea and making the masks. The pattern is on my website. I decided that although I could sell them, I actually wanted other people to be able to make them if they wanted to. So the pattern is on my website. It's it's free to download. I did written instructions with photographs and I did my first YouTube video. So I, I did <laughs> recorded myself making them and that, that sort of say all downloadable from the website if anybody wants to make them. And I think I've made about a hundred at the moment. I made a lot in a short period of time and now it's sort of a, a drip feed. I've just about sold all the ones that I have made and need to make up a few more. And that's been very rewarding as well. It's, they're all things that have been, meant I've been able to sew without adding to my wardrobe because I feel that I have, certainly through the summer, I've got more than enough clothes. I didn't need new summer clothes. It, so it's kept me busy sewing with, without adding to the wardrobe. You've done so much good community work that was really needed right now. So the scrub sewing and developing the masks that are see-through and also providing the details and doing your own YouTube and allowing people to make their own. That's a huge community contribution that you've made, Di. That's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. I had to say, and, and it's been good for me as well. It's, it's, it's good for my general sense of well-being. I've seen some various visor masks in the past, but I'm really proud that I'm actually speaking to someone who's gone and made them. <laughs> put the pattern out and made sure that people have a YouTube video that they can follow so that they can make their own. That's really great. I know in our local area, it's been picked up by another community group, a Facebook group who were making things for health workers. It yeah. wasn't necessarily scrubs, but they were making things like the headbands that health workers could use to stop the mask rubbing their ears. Mm. They had button. I don't know if you've seen sort of the knitted and crocheted headbands with buttons on that the, the, the loops of the mask can fit onto the buttons. So they fit across the back of the head okay. without rubbing their ears. They, they were making all sorts of things for, say, particularly health workers. And then for families who, making masks for families who really couldn't afford to make their own. So they've picked up on the idea of the mask with the see-through visors. Mm. They made them and supplied them. We have a, a school for the deaf in Derby. So they supplied them to the teachers in the deaf school as well. So, you know, the, the whole idea has been picked up by the community as well as, the, you know, the specific work that, that I've been doing. When it comes to the visors, the see-through visors on the masks, that's actually a good thing as well, not just for people who uh, have to lip read, but also for people to see the nuances of what you're saying because you can only see people's eyes at the moment with masks. You can't see their facial features. That's right. And not everybody's eyes express how they're feeling, yeah. do they? Yeah. 
I think it's important for anyone where you're facing someone within your work, but I think particularly with young children mm -hmm. and the elderly. I've had care homes working with people with dementia yes. ask for them. Yeah. Because, like we're saying, that the facial expressions and nuances of language are so much more difficult to understand when you can't see the whole face. Yep. Where I wear them myself when I'm out shopping, and I've had lots of positive comments, particularly from shop workers, about them. They're the people that I always had in mind that would benefit from having the see-through masks because of the variety of people that they have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. One of the first people who contacted me about them um, was actually um, a nurse in a doctor's practice and she appreciated that these are not medical grade masks yeah. but she had a gentleman come to see her that she'd known a long time who was deaf and the two of them had actually got very upset mm. because they couldn't communicate with each other through the traditional masks yeah. so she was one of the first people to contact me just so she had one mm. and her GP had one when they knew they were going to have to work with somebody who needed to lip read. You've done such a great service, honestly. Thank you. So, Di, are there any other ways that you provide information to the sewing community that you'd like listeners to know about? Yes, one of the things that I was extremely proud to be able to do was about 18 months ago, I submitted a piece to Threads magazine that's published in America because all of their articles are submitted by readers but I also know how, how what high standards they have mm. so I submitted an idea and was absolutely stunned about five months later to get an email back from them to say we've been hanging on to your idea for a while we now know how we want to use it could you please write it wow yeah oh, that was amazing and they were so lovely to work with it was a, a, tu a tutorial for a technique that I developed and I had to do all the samples, but multiple times because they wanted to do the photography. <laughs> so I had to <laughs> reproduce each stage so I could send these samples by FedEx off to America. I was thrilled to do that. And since then, I've got a fairly regular slot with So Today magazine. So that's edited and published in the UK, but I think is fairly universal. So the magazine, obviously, of the major pattern companies and, the, you know, the traditional paper pattern companies. And I do a piece, I have done articles, tutorial type articles, but my regular piece is what I would loosely term pattern hacking. I hate the word hacking. Yes. I don't use the word hate very, very often. But hacking to me means cutting things up roughly and not doing things very well or breaking into computer systems. It, yeah, it's got that connotation, doesn't it? Yeah, which, I, which isn't what, <laughs> what I want at all. So, but I, I do a piece where they supply me with any patterns that I want. So I, it's not dictated by what they want. And I take the pattern and alter it in some way. So at the moment, in, I'm sitting here with a Zandra Rhodes jacket that, in this particular one, I've, I've added sizing pockets into it possibly change the technique slightly because I've done things like a hand-rolled hem because it's a sort of an evening jacket. Mm -hmm. So say so this regular piece now and uh, building up a, a good relationship there with the editor moving forward. You're such a contributor to the sewing community in so many various ways and your writing is just one example of how you're giving back to the community. Thank you. But for me, it means I am continuing to be involved yeah. in particularly dressmaking, but I don't have to be actually making clothes all the time to do that. 
and that was the thing that you wanted to steer away from when you started your retirement so-called retirement period <laughs> that's right that's right yeah i i almost admit i am making i'm making a trench coat at the moment which is actually for another article for so today magazine and this is one that I, i'm again sitting next to which I completely made a twirl of because I don't, I don't twirl everything. And if I do, it's normally for fit and I don't make the whole thing. But um, with this one, because of things I want to do and get it right for winter, I've got this twirl sitting next to me and I'm just about to cut it out. So another long project. A long project, but it sounds like it's going to be a very successful one. I hope so. <laughs> I hope it's going to keep me dry if I have to queue up for shopping in the winter. <laughs> so on to one last piece. So over 50, the community, when did you start getting involved with them and how are you finding it? Oh, I got involved almost from the beginning. I was already quite active on Instagram by then and I've no idea how it popped up. I've no idea, you know, how I first found it, but I, I know it was very, very near the beginning. So I got involved on Instagram and then in september october so it was quite early on yes i was asked if i would go and join a group of about 10 of us to do a photo shoot for love sewing magazine and what is it say that took place in november so it's coming up to, to two years ago now and that was a great day and a great chance to suddenly meet up with people that i'd heard of but didn't know and uh, we've set up a really close group of us who keep in touch even outside of Instagram and it's lovely to know that there are people around the country that you can meet up with but obviously following on from that we had the first so over 50 get together back in February when Covid was like hardly talking about and it was lovely to, again to meet people I already knew mm. but to be able to meet up in the UK with people from all over the country and all of these things keep establishing new links new people to chat to and lots of encouragement both for things that I do, I'm able to encourage other people, people ask for advice, we share ideas, and you know you're working with people who, who are of a similar age, we're obviously all very different, but, but yeah. of a similar age, different life experiences. I've found it just so useful in, in so many ways, both practically and especially emotionally. And I think during this, these last few months, mm. especially, mm. it's been re really good to have people that you can share your passion with, but have the understanding that everybody's rather in the same boat at the moment. We are, aren't we? And Sober 50 has been really timely for us, hasn't it? In keeping people positive and together and supported. Yes, I think particularly, you know, for us who are that little bit older, you start to have questions about what is life going to be like? How long is this going to go on for? Mm. So to have the support of the sewing community and share, sharing things that we all have an all enjoy or probably have a passion for is just really really good for our mental health and general well-being it is isn't it yeah we're very lucky that two years ago it was judith sandy and susan got together started sober 50 from a call out from socialists and here we are today such a huge community of people who are helping each other out online that's right and, and right across the world i mean obviously predominantly English speaking, but you know, I'm aware of people who are French, French Canadian, and say the nature of the beast is that it is predominantly English speaking, but, but it is really, it is multinational. And lucky for us now with Instagram, if it's in a different language, you can hit translate and it will come up 
so that's that's the one i love that it does make me giggle sometimes <laughs> it does i don't mind uh, you know the language being lost in translation it's just great that we can talk to each other that, that's right and I, I have some french i'm not fluent in french but i do have some french so i actually quite like the challenge of trying to translate <laughs> The, the the French before I hit the before I hit the translate button. So yeah, that's 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 a totally different challenge. <laughs> it is. Um, Di, do you have any last words for people who are listening to podcasts that you're on for Sober Fifty? Be open to new ideas, and that might be in, in what you wear, but don't get dragged down into, into see, seeing something look great on somebody else, and then making it and discovering it doesn't work for you mm. learning your own style learning what works for you what what fits into your own wardrobe but be open to ideas of using different fabrics perhaps using different techniques always be learning and i've been sewing what now for 55 years mm -hmm. but i'm still learning it's you know it's, it's important to be open-minded it is thank you for those final words di you're welcome Di, thank you so much for coming on to Sew Organised Styles Sober 50 Thursday. It's been a great honour for me to have someone with your depth of experience coming onto the podcast and sharing your knowledge and what you do for the community because it's so significant. Yeah, that's lovely. Thank you very much, Maria, for asking me to do this. I can't believe that I'm speaking to the world, to be honest. It, it seems, in many respects, quite unreal that uh, my passion for sewing means that I'm now a speaking to you in Australia and I'm in the UK. Yeah. But the fact that so many people are going to listen is quite awe-inspiring. Thank you. Thank you for being on Sewer 50 podcast. And I know that listeners will love listening to your podcast and know a bit more about you. Thank you very much. It's been lovely speaking to you. Have a lovely day, listeners. Thanks again, Di, for coming on to Sew Organised Style podcast, Sew Over 50 Thursday. Today's episode of Sew Over 50 Thursday on Sew Organised Style podcast was produced by me, Maria Thea Harris, with permission of Di Kendall, sound by bensound.com. You can subscribe to Sew Organised Style podcast, spelled with an S, not a Z, on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, CastBox, and Libsyn, our podcast distributor. Post any questions or podcast suggestions you have on our podcast Instagram account or on our Facebook page. We look forward to joining you in your sewing room next time. Stay safe, everyone. <laughs>